Hi, thanks for being here with the Austin Connection podcast. The first thing you should know about the Austin Connection is that it is also a free newsletter. Join us at austinconnection.substack.com to find a community of people connected around the stories of Jane Austen. See you there. You're told your emotions are too much all the time. Don't be so loud. Don't be so emotional. Don't fall in love. That's the wrong thing to do. You're getting all of these um, signals from society that you're too much. And romance is about all that too much being like the best part. This is the Austin Connection, exploring how Jane Austen's stories connect to us today and connect us to each other. Leah and B. Koch own and run one of the only, possibly at times it has been the first and only, independent bookstores devoted to romance books. The romance industry, if you don't know it already, is a huge industry, a billion dollar plus industry. Leah and B. Koch have always loved romance novels, and they also have serious academic degrees in their fields and are contracted now to find books for the screen for Sony Pictures. So for these sisters, and for the industry itself, romance is serious business. B. and Leah have also noticed that, like much else in our culture, the romance industry has a diversity problem. So they have produced an annual State of Racial Diversity in Romance Publishing report, gauging the numbers of books being published by BIPOC authors in traditional romance publishing. Just counting can be a powerful thing. Besides running a business through a pandemic, Beekoch has also published a book exploring little-known Regency women from marginalized backgrounds in her book, Mad and Bad, real heroines of the Regency. So I caught up with Leah and B. Koch by Zoom. We talked about how the Regency era has been whitewashed, not only in romance storytelling, but in history itself, history with a capital H. And when it comes to Regency stories, history and romance, and how all of these stories are presented historically and how they can be more accurately reflected, well, they have some thoughts. We began by talking about how challenging the pandemic year has been, but there was an upside. People from all over the world were joining their bookstores events virtually. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. Okay, so Leah, it sounds like ups and downs, as you say, but one Positive might be the community. People are searching out community. People are searching out books. Have you found a sort of increased interest and just sort of connecting? Yeah, well, and I think they're really actually possibly one of the only silver linings um, is the real sort of expansion of our community on a global sense, because I think before people were still excited about the store, but it was sort of like, oh, maybe when I go on vacation to California someday, like I would get to come in, you know, you, we, I think we every once in a while would live stream an event if the author really wanted to, but it just wasn't something that we did a lot. So now anyone can come to a Rip Bodice event because they're all virtual. So if you live in Singapore, um, you can attend the virtual Rip Bodice. Um, And I think we're excited about 
now that we've learned all that, using that to make us more inclusive moving forward so that more people can attend our events um, in different ways and figuring out ways to make that exciting. Um, I agree. I don't see virtual events just completely going away. I mean, we will return to some amount of in-person because it's fun. Um, But yeah, that's been really nice to sort of include more people that way um, and uh, sort of, you know, make, make them feel like they're, uh, you know, at the store sort of from people's living rooms. Yeah, that's great. I know as a reader, I've really appreciated, you know, those kinds of events. Um, B, you also, in, in addition to getting married <laughs> during the pandemic, you've also published a book during the pandemic, Mad and Bad, Real Heroines of the Regency, and you explore Regency romance, uh, actual heroines, actual Regency women, and you find that they're more radical and lively and more challenging and more colorful and diverse in all kinds of ways, um, as was the Regency world, than people tend to think. So can you talk a little bit about this, both of you, but um, also be, why did you take uh, undertake to broaden out uh, our idea of the Regency with this book? I, I mean, my love of the Regency comes from romance novels. And I think um, I am a, a trained historian. You know, I'm putting that in quotes because <laughs> what is a trained historian? I, I, I went to school for it and I studied it for a long time. But I think like so many people, I have a real love of history from fiction. And what I was really searching for um, as I wrote my book was a way to, to talk about the fiction element that I loved so much, what it gets right. And then also, um, where it could expand. And one of those areas, of course, um, is in featuring more women who are not white Christian, um, cishet women. And there are so many examples of people like that in the Regency who were thriving, Um, And I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to highlight some of them in the book. Um, There are are names that I think will be very familiar to fans of the period. And then maybe names that um, you might think, oh, I've heard of them, but I've never quite explored their story. Um, So it was really fun to dive into some of those. Well, who are some of those women who who stand out for you uh, to, you know, if if someone's skeptical and thinking, oh, Regency women, you know, they're boring. Who would you make throw a suggestion? Oh, I'd love Leah, to hear Leah's suggestion. Who's your favorite, Leah? <laughs> as as a reader of the book in many uh, iterations, but in its final iteration, um, someone I knew nothing about before I read the book was Mary Seacole. Um, so that, that's my suggestion. Tell us about her. Well, why Leah? Why Mary Seacole? Yeah, I'm so, why were just, you so interested? I, I just had never heard of her before. I mean, if you spend enough time around B, you know, you will know a lot about Queens and um, I think there's a real, I mean, correct, correct my history if I'm wrong, B, but obviously there's a very British focus to the Regency, but um, it did involve people from other countries. Yes. I think the Regency gets a little confusing for people. The Regency refers to a specific ruler and time in England when Prince George took over as regent for his father. Prince regent, exactly. His father had uh, succumbed to potentially a blood disorder and was exhibiting signs of what they called madness. 
Um, so his son had to take over and there's a 10 year time before he actually becomes King that he is the Prince Regent. And that 10, that tiny little 10 year period is this time that holds, um, such huge sway in our imaginations, um, for so many reasons. And I love that you brought up Mary C. Colia because I think she's a great example of, um, the way history can shine a spotlight on one woman and in doing so, unfortunately, um, we lose the, the tales of the women around her. And so uh, that example, you know, Florence Nightingale is a name that so many of us are raised with, um, this brave, young, privileged, white wo Christian woman who went to the front lines of the war and started uh, modern nursing as we know it. Um, right alongside Florence Nightingale was a woman named Mary Seacole who had been trained by her mother, who was also a doctor and a, she owned a boarding house um, where she practiced her medicine, traditional techniques. Um, and Mary Seacole wrote an autobiography later in life uh, explaining her training through her mother, her search for education her whole life, and then her own journey to the Crimean War um, and her contributions to the war effort, even going so far as to ask Florence Nightingale if she could join her battalion of nurses um, and being turned down. I don't think we Modern explicitly said this. She was British Jamaican. She's black. She, yes, Mary Seacole was British Jamaican. Okay. Um, and Florence Nightingale was uh, white and her battalion of nurses was was all white. Florence, uh, Mary Seacole was the first one, woman of color we have um, evidence that she asked to join and was rejected. And in her autobiography, Mary Seacole writes very movingly um, of her experiences with racism. And she names it um, very clearly what she's experiencing. And then later historians kind of whitewashed Mary Seacole's experience saying, oh, she couldn't possibly have been experiencing racism. It, it was about something else. It was about she didn't have the same training or she didn't have the same standing as Florence Nightingale's other nurses. Um, she didn't let that stop her. Mary Seacole still went to the front. She still served as a nurse and was beloved by the troops to the point where when she returned from the war destitute because no one had helped her shut down her business, uh, the troops organized to raise money um, for Mary Seacole for her to live on after. So to devalue her contributions, not only to the war, but to the soldiers themselves, I think is, is really sad. Um, and there have been moves made to kind of reintroduce Mary Seacole into the story. And um, it won't surprise anyone to hear that some of those moves have been met with uh, consternation by various factions who um, see the elevation of Mary Seacole as a way to devalue Florence Nightingale, hmm. which I don't agree with. I think two one, amazing women doing great things can exist. Of course one not. Can also that have would be blasphemy. They would be <laughs> witches. One could have exhibited racist behaviors. One could have experienced racism. They both could have contributed to the field of modern nursing. Um, and we need to discuss history with a little more nuance and awareness of all these different things can be true at once. Um, for Mary Seacole to exist does not mean Florence Nightingale did not exist or did not contribute to the field of modern nursing. It's Absolutely. almost like you wrote a book on this topic. <laughs> Sorry, I literally can talk about this forever. You know, it is interesting. There is this reluctance to 
bother history, you know, mm-hmm. but, but your book, Mad and Bad, is very lively, very vibrant, and it's contributing to this contemporary conversation about history. In Mad and Bad, you talk about so many real women of the Regency that are Jewish, um, that are LGBTQ identifying in the Regency era, are um, multiracial, and are living outside the bounds of the strictures. They're scientists as well, and they're thinkers and they're writers. I guess the question is, you mentioned whitewashing. What has contributed to this whitewashing? And you probably feel like you're just scratching the surface here. What do you want to see happening as we go forward um, when we talk about the Regency and when we write romances and talk about romance novels? I mean, scratching the surface is a perfect um example it's when i was doing the research for this book there are 10 chapters on the cutting room floor and that was barely anything there there could be so much more to be said about so many different women um and i think the popularity of the regency in um romance is something that is not going to change And so what I would encourage is current creators who are um, engaging with that world, do some research and understand that this whitewash version we've been told um, is not the full story. And in fact, in the stories that haven't been told, there's so much that would be just like catnip to modern audiences. Um, I think about some of the stories in in my book, some of, and and some of the stories I didn't even get to talk about in the book um, and the way they could be adapted into film or TV shows. Um, I just think there's so many stories and the idea that the Regency has been done and gone because we've seen so many versions of white at purely white casted adaptations um, is just leaving so much history behind. This is such an exciting and interesting conversation right now. I feel like people are really hungry to discuss new ways of looking at the Regency, and they're so hungry to see um, diverse casting uh, and different ways of, of looking at our history and looking at these romances. So what do you think of Bridgerton? <laughs> and what do you think of different way, uh, contemporary adaptations? And what are you seeing on this right now? We're, we're just at the beginning. Um, yeah. You know, I think, <laughs> I don't want to get too into a discussion of how Hollywood functions because we'll all fall asleep um, and be here for three years. Um, but... <laughs> You know, things just take so much longer to come to the screen than I think the average person realizes. So when somebody sees something like Bridgerton have a lot of success and they're like, oh, great. Like uh, everything I see for the next year is going to be a romance novel. It's like, well, unfortunately, it's going to take a little bit longer than that. Um, But I would say, you know, it's it's a toss up for me. Um, You know, I enjoy seeing interesting adaptations of work um, that has been adapted a lot. I tend to fall more on the side um, of being interested um, in sort of new, um, newer creators um, 
and in particular, you know, giving uh, Black people the chance to tell Black stories and queer people the chance to tell queer stories. Um, but I think both can coexist. Okay. B, what do you think? I, I mean, I agree that we're just at the beginning and it is certainly where we've always wanted <laughs> since we opened the bookstore. Um, we made no secret that we were looking for as particularly historical stories that were more diverse um, because that's what our audience was asking us for. And that's literally why I wrote Mad and Bad. People would come into the bookstore and I would recommend a romance novel to them and explain, oh, it's inspired by X, Y, or Z woman. And then they'd say, oh, do, do you have a book, of, do you have a biography about her? I'd love to learn more about her. And it just seemed like the, in romance, there's this real interest in the real history of the time. And in understanding that it has pushed the boundaries forward in so many ways, and there's also so much more we need to do. Um, so we can continue to ask for more um, historical romance novels that are not set in Regency England. 19th century, great, love it. Ha another country, there's so many stories to be told. Um, I I'm always surprised that we don't see more of that uh, traditionally published. There is quite a bit that's independently or self-published, but um, I don't know. I would think that the publishers would really see that there's a huge market for for interesting um, historical stories that haven't been told before from a different perspective. All right, let's hope. Along these lines, you two very quickly after opening, it seems like the, the Ribbed Bodice, started publishing the State of Diversity and Romance Publishing Report. Why did you so quickly jump on this report? What made you feel like it was needed and that this was something you had to do? Well, just to be clear, it is racial diversity. We always want to make sure we're clear about that because we don't look at other, there are lots of other forms of diversity, obviously. Um, it has a, a, a quite narrow um, focused goal. And I think we started because of exactly what B just said. It was really what our customers were asking for. And I think it was it was a very big change for us to go from being enthusiastic romance readers to professional romance readers. Um, that is essentially what we do. Um, you just have such a larger picture, um, you know, unless you're like an obsessive reader, which a lot of people are, um, you know, you might not be looking as widely um, at all the different publishers and sort of how the imprints function within them and who's doing what. It's just, um, you know, I would say not something that most regular people pay all that much attention to. Um, so when we, you know, entered the professional realm, um, it was just, it was so obvious so fast um, that the supply was not meeting the demand. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's so often, um, I felt, I felt like for a long time and, to be clear, there has been improvement in, in the last five years, but I feel like when we first opened pretty much anyone that's anything that someone would ask for, there'd be like one. So it'd be like, you know, do you have anything with a 
black heroine and an Asian hero. And we'd say, yes, great, here. And then they'd come back and be like, okay, what's next? And we'd be like, uh, that was it. Um, so, and that's just one specific example. But at that point, um, we felt like there was still this mantra um, from the publishers. And we always, always say it's kind of contradictory. It's on one hand, um, this isn't as big of a problem as you're making it out to be. And then on the other hand, also, we're working on it. Um, we are improving. We hear you. We're definitely, we're def, we're, we're definitely improving. Um, and we felt like they weren't improving or weren't improving fast enough. Go ahead, B. I, I think we also realized that this is such a large, complicated conversation and so many people are having it on so many levels. And our question was, what is the piece of information that we can add to the conversation? And to us, it seemed like what we could do was count the number of books that each publish, each major publisher puts out by women of color and by white women, which is just a part of the conversation that we've always viewed the report as a part of the conversation. This is a way to present these numbers and then talk more deeply about what we're all doing to change those numbers if that's something that we say we want to do, which many publishers continue to put out statements saying, yes, we really want to focus on this, something we really care about. And then when it comes time to really have the conversation about how best to do that, maybe I'm sure those conversations are hap happening internally, um, but they also don't seem to be moving the numbers as quickly as maybe some people thought they would. So we're just suggesting that we might need to try other things. Yeah. yeah. It sounds exactly. like a very, very simple, but yet powerful way of just drawing attention to something. And like you say, sparking a conversation, giving people something to look at and just counting. Journalists know counting can be a very powerful thing. Right. It's always, it's really, it's really simple. It's literally two numbers. Um, it's okay. I've, you know, at ABC publishers, we put out a hundred books a year um, or romance novels. I should say we only count romance novels. Um, it's not everything that would, uh, we don't have time for that. It's, okay. So here's our hundred books. Um, and uh, according to our website, um, you know, 10 of them are written by um, black indigenous and other people of color. Um, and then we find the percentage, which I've made this one very easy for myself because, you know, sometimes I struggle. Uh, but so your percentage is 10% and that's it. Um, and we hope that, that that's just the beginning. This is the Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane, your host, and you're listening to my conversation with the sister entrepreneurs, Leah and B. Koch. They own the Ripped Bodice Bookstore. And when it comes to representation in the romance industry, in Austin adaptations and retellings and in history's handling of the Regency era, they have some thoughts. We've been talking about the annual report on racial diversity in romance publishing We'll pick up the conversation where B. Koch talks about the hashtag publishing paid me, which promotes transparency and equity and payment for writers and others in the romance industry. Thanks for being here. Now back to the conversation. 
when Publishing Paid Me came out, we saw very few white romance novelists share how much they are paid. And that, let me just say, that's the hashtag that encourages authors, and you did this, be to report openly what they've been paid so that we can see where there are disparities and, and payment disparities for publication. Absolutely. The conversation around equality in publishing, there's a huge part where we're encouraged to remain silent. Don't talk about money. It, especially for women, it's rude. It's vulgar. Why, why would you tell how much? You, I mean, I could go on and on and you've heard it all before, but if we're going to have have a conversation about equality, it's probably helpful for people to have this information and for people to continue to say, I'm not going to share that um, for X, Y, or Z reason. When it felt like our Black colleagues were asking us to share that, it, it was um, a choice. I, I, I don't know. I, I was surprised to see that it seemed like, and, and I understand there are contractual obligations. Um, I did not speak with my agent before I shared that information because I knew that my agent would back me up sharing that information. And that's great. Yeah. I, I, I wish more people had agents. They felt like would back them up in that kind of thing because um as authors, we're so siloed and isolated. And and I just think like collective bargaining works. And I think that's been being encouraged, you know, throughout our culture right now. And so you two are tapping into a lot of these things and just, uh, you know, applying them in a kind of a, in a very powerful way to the, the business of romance, which is a huge business. So let me take a step back because we've gotten very, uh, talking all the serious stuff. I'm sorry, sorry. That's my fault. No, that's my fault. But, um, well, let me ask something though. You, You two are young and feminist and bring, you know, a lot of, I mean, some, some, in some ways, diversity and also, uh, you're very, very well educated, uh, You've got fancy degrees, like very impressive work, but you love the ro- you love romance reading. You've always loved romance reading. So, what what draws you to romance? And also, do you feel like you are a typical romance reader? Are you an example of readers of romance are everybody? What do you think about that, Leah? Very much so. I mean, I think you have to you have to spend pre pandemic, obviously, about you know an hour in our store um, to sort of just see the parade of humanity that that comes through. Um, I I think that's something really um, valuable that that the store offers. I just feel like for so long there there was this notion that romance readers are white women in their 60s. Um, And not that they don't read and love romance. We have many wonderful customers um, of that age. But um, to me, the the biggest th- thing that's wrong about the stereotypical romance reader is age. Um, we really see twelve to ninety. <laughs> um, you know, just tr- the entire entire age spectrum. Um, whether that's you know young people getting interested in young adult 
books um, and sort of reading their their first books that have kissing in them, or um, I, we have a, I hear probably one of the things I hear all the time is I just graduated from whatever high school, college, graduate, law school, something. Now I get to read for myself again, and I'm going to return or start romance. Um, hear that all the time. What's so amazing is to hear what's bringing people to romance now is what brought us to romance as young women. And that is that these books um, center internal thoughts of the characters. And as young women, as young people, I'm sorry, this is not a gendered thing, but I will speak from my own experience as a woman. Um, you're told your emotions are too much all the time. Don't be so loud. Don't be so emotional. Don't fall in love. That's the wrong thing to do. You're getting all of these um, signals from society that you're too much. And romance is about all that too much being like the best part. Yeah. A emotion is the best part of a romance. And it, I always think of the movie Inside Out. This <laughs> is Sorry, like again, off on another tangent. But when I saw Inside Out as an adult, it wasn't available to me as a child. I was like, what an amazing movie for kids to have now to be able to talk about all their emotions and 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 really feel like that's important. And to me, as a young woman, my romances, my, the, the relationships my friends were having, that was my whole world. And so to find a whole genre where that was at, was the most important thing and was so central and never denigrated. Um, it made romance so important to me. And I love to hear new generations finding it for that same reason. It's funny, you're reminding me um, when I was, was younger and discovered Proust as a college student, I realized Proust is this is hailed as this brilliant writer and he's just writing about obsessive love that's all he's doing and it's funny yeah. how you do people so you're bringing me now to a little bit of jane austen so something that jane austen did that's so powerful is to center this interior life feelings of a woman she also made damn sure to make it a very intelligent woman like her women Absolutely. her heroines are the smartest people in the room and Jane Austen is always there letting you know how whip smart they are. They're but smarter I also than, love your, than how your guy. They're surrounded by other women and we get to see dumb women and other smart women as well. I something I always love about Austen is I think you can see her own love for her sister in her writing. Um, and in the way the sisters, of course, like Pride and Prejudice sisters, but in all her books, sisters and friendships play out. Yeah. Um, I think we even see like still in romance, of course, the central love story is so important, but many of my favorite romance novels focus just as much on the friendships surrounding the couple and the way love changes not only your relationship with your partner, but your rela relationship with your sister and your best friend. And it, it, you're building your family and bringing all these people in. Um, and I think the idea that Austin still to this day connects to people in that way and makes you feel instantly like those sisters our, our, are your sisters and, and you're in that drawing room with them and feeling 
their squabbles and their love for each other um, and how they'll be there for each other even when one makes a mistake. It's just so universal. sister Leah Kaj talking with us here at the Austin Connection about Regency women, romance, diversity in publishing, history, and so much more. And our conversation continues. Leah and B also talked with me about their favorite Jane Austen novels, some of the interesting retellings they love, some of their favorite characters, favorite films from Austin and from the Regency era. That's next time on the Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane. Thanks for joining us.